Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Christian von Stock. Christian von Stock is the Executive Vice President of RAND Europe, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'd like to point out that I'm a member of RAND Europe's Council of Advisors. Uh, we're going to talk about something called vaccine nationalism, Chris. So you've co-authored, along with some of your colleagues at RAND Europe, quite a major study called COVID-19 and the cost of vaccine nationalism. So could you just briefly start by giving me what is your working definition of vaccine nationalism? Well, uh, Paul, uh, great to be with you. Um, vaccine nationalism is um, really, I guess, um, the, 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 the state whereby you would uh, immunize your own population first or prioritize the immunization of your own population before you would share a vaccine with uh, other countries. Um, another way to think about it is um, also equitable distribution of vaccines. Um, so the idea being that those countries that can produce vaccines will prioritize the vaccination of their own populations before they share um, this uh, vaccine more widely. Okay, so what inspired you and your colleagues at Rand Europe to, to write this report and do this research in the first place? Well, it was interesting. I mean, when we started thinking about this problem um, was, uh, of course, earlier this year when we saw some countries making moves uh, to actually uh, prioritize um, the uh, purchasing of the vaccine for their own countries and our own populations first. Now, you would argue that this would be normal, that countries would act out of self-interest. But we also noticed that um, by purchasing these um, uh, vaccines ahead of time, that they're also limiting the distribution of such vaccines to other countries um, in and by itself. Um, so we started thinking about what the problem could be of actually uh, countries prioritizing, uh, particularly those countries that can produce a vaccine to themselves first before they actually distribute it to other countries. How, but how visible, how sort of blatant, to use a strong word, was, were these moves by governments uh, uh, at this stage of the coronavirus? Because vaccines, of course, we've had some very good news very recently, but uh, the idea of a new vaccine coming anywhere near to, to completion and available was very much a remote possibility a few months ago. Yeah, well, I mean, it was very blatant to begin with, uh, Paul. I mean, um, as soon as uh, vaccines were becoming, uh, being developed, uh, countries were actually start, started advanced purchasing uh, those vaccines right. uh, already. And of course, by doing so, they were also restricting the access uh, to those vaccines by other countries, of course. Okay. Did you have a, a sponsor for this research or was it kind of own, own inspired internally in around Europe? Yeah, it was internally funded, uh, which is also interesting. So uh, RAND is, of course, a not-for-profit. So any margins that we make on our work, we reinvest in research and, and development. So this was one of those studies that was funded internally. And did you, when you started doing, and I'll ask you a second to try and explain in layman's terms your methodology, because I'm sure it's very complicated. Uh, but when you started the, the exercise, did you, uh, did you also have, a, a, in broad terms, obviously, because the research had not been conducted at that stage, a broad idea, the order of magnitude of the, of the cost, the broad cost of uh, vaccine nationalism before you even began applying yourself to the research? Um, not really. I think um, we, we're thinking about large numbers to, to, for sure, but um, you know, typically when you do these kind of costings, uh, there are relatively large numbers. But of course, those large numbers are largely associated with the large costs of COVID-19 in and by itself. Um, so if you think about the disruption that COVID-19 causes an economy, and then I think about what would happen if these restrictions were lifted, and of course we see that in our you know, day-to-day -day economies, 
um, then you know they would be sort of um, you know sort of of orders of magnitude of that sort of uh, level really. Okay. Well, can you talk me through then the, the as in as simple language you possibly can muster the methodology you adopted to to, to do this research? Yeah. So it, it, it's it's really not that complicated, uh, uh, Paul. It is it is complicated, but it isn't. Um, basically, what you try to do is you try to simulate um, the global economy really um, through something called a computerized a general equilibrium model. Um, which is a fancy term for a model that really tries to capture all of the economic interactions um, that occur globally. So it's a dynamic model. So basically, everything is connected to everything. So, for instance, if you um, if if you um, change one aspect of the economy, economy consumption, it has an impact on production, etc. All of these different uh, factors are are combined. And then what you try to do within uh, that model is you try to set a baseline scenario. So you try to set a scenario. Uh, in this case, what would happen to the world, global economy if a vaccine was made available to everyone, right? Um, uh, and, um, and then obviously you return to a relatively more normal state. And the other thing you try to model in, a, um, uh, in, in, in this way is what is the disruption that is caused by COVID-19? So you try to model almost the two extremes. Um, and of course, COVID-19, what's interesting about it is it affects specific sectors more than others. So for instance, if you think about hospitality, transportation, those type of sectors uh, are quite severely impacted. So you, you, you take the impact that, that, that you see in those sectors and then you let it feed through the model. So there's all kinds of dynamic effects that take place in a model like that. And then that gives you sort of the two extremes of the model as it were. Uh, lots of disruption and then a situation where you can return more or less to a normal situation. Uh, and the only way in this model for that normal situation to rise is for the vaccine to be made widely available. So our assumption is that once the vaccine becomes widely available, none of these sectors will be impacted any longer. So, so in, again, in broad headline terms, what are your main findings, these different scenarios you, you, you lay out in your report? What are the headline main features? Well, I mean, uh, so, so, so it, it's useful to also mention that the scenarios that we run um, are the following. So you basically have a scenario where you have no um, uh, dis the, the disruption, as it were, you have a, a scenario where you have, um, um, you know, only the uh, vaccine is available in vaccine-producing countries. You have a scenario where uh, the vaccine is available in vaccine-producing countries and high-income countries. And then you have a scenario where um, um, the vaccine is available in all the high-income countries, in all middle-income countries, but not in the poor countries. And that's obviously the scenario where you have... Um, the last scenario is obviously where you have, uh, let's, let's put it this way, the, the least economic impact, but you still have a substantial economic impact. Um, so if you take um, a scenario where, for instance, the vaccine is only available in the vaccine-producing countries, you get into quite large numbers in terms of actually the cost globally of, of that scenario, which is about $1.3 trillion uh, glo globally. Um, so those are huge numbers. So, but, but keep in mind, that's not a realistic scenario because if it was only available in vaccine-producing countries like India, China, and so on, that seems very unlikely in this current situation. Uh, but what's interesting is that even if you vaccinate the whole um, global economy, except for the poor countries, there's still quite a substantial impact, and that impact is about $153 billion. Uh, um, now, that's much lower, obviously, than the $1.3 uh, but it's still a quite a substantial number. So the report is arguing is that rather than there just being a moral obligation really to vaccinate everybody globally, it's also an economic imperative. And 
And by putting an economic cost to it, we can also just sort of try to convince um, you know, countries like the EU27, well, I mean, groupings like the EU27 or countries like the UK and US to take this much more seriously and actually start focusing on sharing uh, the vaccine, uh, which is um, obviously, um, you know, uh, obviously from our perspective, the, the more efficient outcome. Well, I want to come back to this convincing point in, in a second, Chris, but before we do that, um, were you surprised and your, and your, your co-researchers by the, the, the figures that you came up with at the end? Yes, I know. I mean, we know that COVID-19 has a, has a very dramatic impact. I think what is interesting about this model, uh, Paul, is how interconnected we all are in the, in the world. And, and I think we sometimes, uh, especially in perhaps in our current uh, political times, we forget about this, right? Um, there is no such thing as America first, UK first, or Europe first. Um, we are all interconnected as a global economy. So there, there are quite substantial trade effects from us, um, you know, uh, from, uh, from, you know, from COVID-19. And of course, um, if we say, well, the UK is now vaccinated or Europe is now vaccinated, we don't care about anybody else. Uh, that is relatively self-defeating because there will still be quite substantial economic cost to us, simply because there's a lot of disruption in our trading partners. Uh, and some of those training partners are poor countries, actually, interestingly enough. So, so from that point of view, I think uh, the interconnectedness um, of our global system was again emphasized in this study. And that's always uh, interesting to see. Okay, well, on this convincing point, then, uh, as you said just now, uh, RAND is, uh, is a non-profit organization. I know also from my, my exposure to your work, you're, not, you're very uh, resolutely non-partisan, but it seems almost you had without trying to put you on the spot, Chris, that you had some almost like a political motivation. Your desire was also to convince governments that uh, they should act in a particular way in, in the, in, with evidence suggesting the contrary. Well, I, I mean, in, in some ways it, it might feel like, um, you know, that this study might be, uh, you know, politically aligned with, with a certain movement, but it really isn't. I think it was just focusing on the basic facts that as a, as a you know, as a, as a world, we're interconnected, there are trade flows between ourselves. And uh, to be honest, um, issues such as vaccine distribution is not a zero-sum game, right? Mm -hmm. It's not uh, one country getting the vaccine, another country's not. I mean, it seems an obvious point of view to say from a public health point of view. Um, but I think the, the, the fact that we managed to build an economic case for it uh, in our study, um, you know, sort of uh, amplifies uh, that message to some extent. Um, so from my point of view, it's, um, you know, it's as, as every piece of work we do, we let the facts do the talking, we let the research do the talking. Um, perhaps in this case, uh, the outcome was, um, was, was a bit more logical and obvious than in other studies. And during the course of the research, I'm sure it took quite a while to, 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 from start to finish, uh, were there signs that, that governments were acting uh, in, in, in a quote-unquote better way because of, because of I don't know, a change of heart, or did, were there actually things, the situation getting worse? Well, there, there no, I mean, there's no such thing anymore as a pure vaccine nationalist approach, um, Paul. I mean, I think most countries are, are seeing value in, in sharing to some extent. Um, you know, the, 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 the IP or knowledge that they have in terms of vaccines and also the vaccines themselves. Uh, however, the, 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 there is a question of how much of this they're doing. Um, so uh, there's a little bit of tokenism here. Um, there's also perhaps in some cases there is a hint of uh, uh, countries having uh, geopolitical sort of reasons for, for distributing. Um, so what we're trying to say is, uh, regardless of how you want to do it, there's a, there's a real point about equitable access uh, more widely. So this is not about 
um, you know, sort of withholding it from, from specific territories or countries. But you could also make the same argument about equitable access also about uh, within countries to some extent, because we of course know that um, there's no guarantee that the most at risk or the more the most you know the, the most um, sort of needy will get the vaccine first. I mean, in some ways, you always worry about resources um, and income playing a big role in in terms of who gets access first. Uh, you make the point in the report, but obviously that uh, less developed countries uh, have special needs, of course, and they should not be ignored or, or forgotten about. But unless I'm missing something also, there's a kind of related problem also, the, the local in, internal infrastructure. So even if they were given millions and millions of doses uh, from different manufacturers, uh, through, you know, through maybe government, national, regional, whatever, uh, large organizations, philanthropy or donation programs, uh, it has to be accompanied by some kind of infrastructure support as well, surely. Yeah, and to be honest, this is also a, a, a factor in our own distribution in, uh, in the EU or in the UK. I mean, the distribution of some of these vaccines will be very, very difficult. Um, uh, especially, for instance, the Pfizer vaccine requires ultra-cold storage. Now, I mean, to be honest, looking at my own country like the UK or um, European Union, ultra-cold storage is, uh, is still uh, not in, you know, is in short supply, right? Um, there are other vaccines that will make it a lot easier to distribute, but some of those vaccines might be less effective. So you could get into a scenario, which we haven't modeled in our work, but we should model going forward, is that um, uh, maybe less effective, effective vaccines that are easier to distribute are made available to, uh, uh, you know, more people around the globe. Um, this is really kind of a, a follow-on study, Paul, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, but, but there is some really interesting questions about, uh, that you raise about the distribution of these vaccines more widely, but of course also in less developed countries um, and more broadly. I don't know how closely you and your colleagues around have been following the, the European Union, the European Commission's uh, response to this. And I just, I'd like to quote of you, uh, to you a few lines from a, a recent press statement by the, by the European Commission where they talk about they've just uh, completed the fourth contract with a pharmaceutical company, in this case, obviously, BioNTech and Pfizer, for initial purchase of 200 million doses of, of this vaccine. Uh, after done, doing similar contracts with AstraZeneca, Sanofi GSK, and Janssen Pharmaceutica, and then they go on to talk about CureVac and Moderna. There seem to be quite a few potential uh, good news stories, as we say. Uh, but they just also specify in the same press statement that member, and uh, I quote, Member states can decide to donate the vaccine to lower and middle income countries or to redirect it to other European countries, end of quote. Uh, do you, are, you, are you encouraged by that? Do you think it's a sincere objective of the, of the institution? Um, well, I, I, th I think it's moving in the right direction, but I think, um, you know, really what is more telling is the commitments that some of the countries have made to initiatives run by the WHO, by, by other bodies like that to actually uh, make vaccines more broadly available. And of course, uh, funding there is absolutely um, critical. Um, I think the question I would ask back to you, Paul, and perhaps there's no obvious answer is, you know, the, the, the real test is how many of those vaccines will actually be donated, right? Um, but, you know, I think, I think the overall reality of advanced uh, purchases is that, um, you know, of course, countries with uh, high income countries have been very effective at these advanced purchases. Um, the question really is, is, you know, in what time frame? Uh, a significant, um, you know, supply of the vaccine will be made available uh, to uh, low-income countries. And that's, that's, I think, the real test, I think, for us as a system, um, you know, to see how that happens.
You say uh, in your report, a danger you said, that the, some governments would be too hasty maybe to uh, push ahead with a vaccine, uh, even you know, we see uh, <laughs> with uh, vaccine nationalism at the back of their minds, uh, with issues about obviously efficacy and security uh, are very much paramount. But at the same time, I wonder if there's another uh, uh, concern, which is, or at least a reality, that some countries just might hold back if they're aware of another vaccine around the corner, which might be more effective or easier to, to, to store and to and to distribute. They may hold back. Is that something that's going to happen, or are we uh, just maybe just making problems where none exist? Well, I think there's a huge issue with the anti-vax movement, um a poll, which we will, um, we will, which we will see in the next, um, you know, months and uh, up to uh, the next couple of years. Um, the, you know, obviously, we are accelerating vaccine developments, um, you know, uh, tremendously at the moment, and which has a benefit. Um, but it's also realistic to assume that there will be some adverse effects that will take place. Now, some, um, some observers are saying one in a thousand people might have serious um, uh, effects. Now, that's still a huge number of individuals. Um, to go through the system. That may not be accurate. It could be one in 10,000, but still we will have a number of people who will get adverse reactions. Um, you know, the question then is how that gets amplified on social media and so on, and what that then does to, you know, in terms of the trust in, in a vaccine, um, or, um, you know, what that does in terms of the distribution of the vaccine. Uh, the second point you make is um, around hoarding of the vaccine. You know, um, I think that has to play out. I don't think we have any concrete evidence to suggest uh, that people might hold on to stocks of vaccine and then wait for a more effective vaccine to immunize their population with. Um, maybe, I don't know, go with the, the highest effect um, vaccine first and then try to go for a low effect vaccine. I think that still has to play out. But I think also that speaks to your point about, you know, when uh, additional doses of the vaccine will be made available to third countries or whether high income countries will try to hoard more vaccine than they actually need for their population. Okay, a final question for you, Chris. Now, you said at the beginning one of the key objectives of this report was to convince governments to 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 think about what they were doing, and not just from a moral point of view, but from a kind of hard-nosed, self-interested economic point of view. So, what 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 are you hoping to do now? Now the report is out; it's public; it's public knowledge in the public domain. Uh, how, as an organisation, are you uh, attempting to bring this report and its findings to the attention of the of the relevant authorities and and personalities as well? Yeah, good point, uh, Paul. I mean, I guess, um, you know, our reports are always uh, aimed at influencing decision makers and so on. So the, the key aspect is actually reaching those decision makers. So um, um, so there has, has been some interest from the, um, the, the team around, uh, you know, uh, well, President-elect or President-elect to be Biden in the United States. Um, we've had some interest, obviously, from, from Gates and, and his foundation. Um, but I think it's get, getting beyond that, getting into uh, talking to national decision makers um, and really, I guess, starting to make that argument that, you know, there's a real economic benefit to all from actually making this vaccine more widely available and actually coming up with, 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 with strong, um, um, strong plans to, uh, to, to allow this to do so. Some of those are in, uh, already in development, such as I mentioned with WHO, and that perhaps it's really about countries starting to support those plans. So, um, so more to do for us with the report, and then of course the other the other thing we need to do is model other scenarios within our uh, within our study, and this is really about the effectiveness of vaccines, as you mentioned. This is about how easy they are to distribute, and also not 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 to underestimate the importance of the cost of these vaccines. So, if you have a vaccine like AstraZeneca, which is going to cost us three pounds, 
how does that compare to a vaccine like Moderna's, which is going to be about 40, um, 40 US dollars. So quite significant differences in the pricing models as well. Okay, there's going to be a sequel that we can all look forward to. Okay, uh, we have to leave it there. Christian van Stelk, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.